7.32. So it feels like we're at a tipping point in North Korea relations with both Pyongyang and the US waiting to see who'll blink first. And the North's Deputy Foreign Minister saying earlier this week it's up to Washington to choose what Christmas gift it will get. And that seemed to trigger... I wouldn't say necessarily a war of words, but certainly a a build-up towards what might become a a war of words. As much like the rest of us, Seoul is largely sidelined for now, caught up in military cost-sharing talks with the US. I'm waiting to see how this will play out before Pyongyang's year-end deadline. Let's get further analysis from Bruce Klingner, Senior Research Fellow for Northeast Asia at the Heritage Foundation. Good morning to you from Seoul. Well, thanks for having me again. So Chairman Kim, when things are not quite going his way, he seems to ride up Mount Bekdo on a white horse. Um, well, it's the second time in less than two months he's done that and, and it's called for an offensive spirit of Bekdo against imperialists, uh, among others. Uh, do you read much into that sort of thing? Well, my, I guess my first thought was I, I pity that poor horse who's going to carry him uh, all the way up that mountain. Uh, they're they're sturdy animals. Him. Yeah. Um, you know, and before when you're talking about sort of a possible uh, war of words, it, it's it's a bit more of a skirmish or a reconnaissance by fire. Uh, you know, I, I think both uh, Trump's words and the North Korean response were, were, you know, fairly muted. I mean, Trump was really just as as a, a throwaway remark uh, when talking about broader Asian issues. It was sort of a you know, if we need to, we'll, we'll use military force, and he didn't define that as whether it was a preventive attack or return of fire and fury. It was more of a, if we need to, we'll use military means. Uh, and then North Korea kind of responded with, well, if the North, if the Americans start it, then we will respond. So I, I think it was sort of a, a bit less than it's made out to be. Uh, you know, but that doesn't detract from the the overall uh, you know stagnation and negotiations between the two countries. Uh, or North Korea's, you know, repeated threats of, you know, our patience runs out at the end of the year and we're going to do more dire, though not yet specified actions. North Korea famously had the whole world looking up the uh, meaning of the word dotard uh, before <laughs> last time around when we had the uh, intensification of of rhetoric between the, the, the U.S. and North Korea. Well, this time again, this... It's quite. I, I, I mean, they've actually doubled down here because we've got a senior North Korean official in Che Sun-hee, who's a, a first vice foreign minister there, saying that um, it. Okay, I, I'm not even quite sure how to pronounce this, but um, it would be uh, the relapse of the dotage of a dotard if any words stoking the atmosphere of confrontation are used once again on purpose at a crucial moment as now. So dotage apparently is the uh, is the action of a dotard. Yeah, it, it, it's a bit of a game on with, with uh, the, the war of vocabulary. Um, but again, Trump had, had, when he called him Rocket Man, it was it almost, he seemed to indicate a, a term of endearment, just like, well, he really likes to launch rockets, and uh, you know that's why I call him Rocket Man. But I, I think North Korea did have that sort of looking up in the dictionary. If, if you see Rocket Man, then you must respond with a synonym of dotage and dotard. So... Uh, again, kind of a, a low-level, you know, skirmish of words. But, you know, many of us are concerned as to, you know, where things will go at the beginning of the, of the year. You know, I, I don't think uh, as the the ball drops at Times Square on New Year's Eve that we're going to get uh, reports of a, you know, concurrent North Korean nuclear test. But there is concern that they may sort of go up the, the ladder of escalation, whether it's 
medium-range missile launches, intermediate-range, perhaps over Japan or towards Guam, a, a space launch uh, vehicle launch, which is sort of an ICBM in civilian clothing, perhaps something uh, in the West Sea. There was recently the uh, the artillery exercise. But I think if, if Kim goes to a, a nuke or an ICBM test, that really crosses Trump's red line, and then we're in, we're in very uncertain and, and nerve-wracking territory. Right, and and you can already picture the media headlines with any kind of escalation. Plus, we've got the opportunity of uh, Chairman Kim's New Year's speech, which uh, or, or address that's released, and and that always is something that seems to be used as a barometer. Uh, and and in the past has fueled headlines that war is on the way, and in other times has fueled speculation that North Korea is ready to cooperate. Uh, this time around, if things remain as they are, can you see him? using very confrontational language? Well, I, I think you know, we will be analyzing and overanalyzing the New Year's address, uh, perhaps even more so than normal. But you know, having looked at these things for 26 years, I, I find them to be pretty formulaic, and there often is kind of overinterpretation, uh, as, as you said, kind of both in both extremes. Usually if you know, it's usually 5,000 words, 3,500 words are often devoted to domestic economics. There's a section on our compatriots in the South. Uh, if only they would get rid of those pesky Americans, everything would be solved. And, and you know, if there's a sense of, uh, you know, if the Americans do something bad, we will, uh, you know, take care of them. You know, often that second half of the sentence is, is touted in media headlines of North Korea threatens war. Uh, and then people will also will often look at some of the the more benign words or even the words that weren't said as indications of you know dramatic economic reform or extending an olive branch and but they often these speeches read very similar to what was done in previous years coming back to president trump's comments because um, it was really the the way he seemed so unpredictable in 2017 that seemed to help pave the way for at least dialogue in 2018. As I mentioned briefly before, it's perhaps debatable how much progress we made through those summits. But 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 can it work again? Do you, do you think that North Korea will just call his bluff this time around uh, if, if he does start you know threatening action? Because last time he he didn't seem to get very close to it, and in in fact he's talking about maybe even withdrawing troops from South Korea as cost-sharing discussions don't seem to be going that well? Well, I think in, in 2017, the, the tensions were high. Uh, when I would visit Seoul, I'd hear from South Korean officials that they were not only concerned, they were scared that the U.S. was going to do something, given comments by, uh, private comments by U.S. officials. Uh, you know, I was the CIA Korea branch chief in 93-94, and I, I thought we maybe were closer to something in 2017 than we were in 94. Um but, you know, Trump's not going to just jump in with, with threats. Any kind of, you know, if there is, even if it's a, there is a return of fire and fury, it's going to be a reaction to North Korean uh, provocation. So when people say, well, how can we prevent the U.S. from returning to fire and fury? It's like, well, have North Korea not, uh, you know, up the, up the gain on their violations of U.N. resolutions. So but, Trump's I mean, not going to jump in. It's only a response. I mean, that's a given, though, isn't it? I mean, even when... We've been in relatively warmer spots this year. We've seen North Korea provoke with these uh, missile and projectile tests. Okay, they've not been ICBMs, but they've been seemingly unnecessary and certainly provocative. 
Right. So North Korea has done 26 missile launches. That's the most uh, missile launches in any year ever. Uh, all of them are violations of the U.N. resolution, so that's the most violations in a year. Um, but, you know, they're shorter range or, or one medium-range uh, submarine launch. Uh, but North Korea was developing four new weapon systems this year, so, you know, that's of concern to, to or should be of concern to South Korea uh, and our forces stationed there. Um, but in, in the hierarchy of international responses to North Korean provocations, short range has always been a pretty minimal response. You know, and that said, the U.S. sort of should have adopted a, a better tone or a different tone than a, yeah, they're violations, but I don't care about them because they don't violate his, his verbal promise to me not to do ICBM or nuke tests. So, you know, we could have announced that, you know, this is, we view this sternly, we this is undermining the atmosphere for negotiations, and just as you have an end-of-year uh, deadline for doing provocative actions, we too have could have an end-of-year deadline for removing our own self-imposed constraints on allied military exercises and pulling our punches on enforcing U.S. law and U.N. resolutions. Yeah, this year-end deadline, as we approach it, we could endlessly debate it, but it does feel like President Trump and Chairman Kim have painted themselves into corners on opposite sides of a room. They both seem to think it's the, the others move next, and um, we we just wait and see. But if, as I personally presume, we're not going to see a, a, a denuclearization deal breakthrough between now and, and, and the beginning of the year, um, how important is it that the Seoul alliance starts to look a little stronger? Because we've had China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi on this peninsula warning against unilateralism, talking about... Uh, a visit by Xi Jinping next year. We've got the trilateral summit with Xi Jinping and Shinzo Abe involving President Moon later this month. And uh, and with the alliance possibly starting to crack, is that a big problem right now? Uh, very much so. Uh, you know, the the president is really demanding exorbitant increases in, in the burden-sharing or cost-sharing agreement with both Seoul and then next year with, with Tokyo. Uh, you know, we here at the Heritage Foundation have been very much against this, you know, exponential increase in, in the demand. You know, it really makes it look like we're trying to make a profit on our uh, stationing of forces overseas, and our alliances and our stationing of, of forces there uh, are in our interests, our strategic interests, in, including defending our allies and deterring conflict. So, you know, we, we don't want to have our, mer- our our forces look like mercenaries, uh, I currently have a son uh, deployed in Afghanistan, and he didn't go into the military to make a profit for the U.S. It's for principles and values. So uh, we really need to pull back on these these demands because, you know, they could generate, uh, you know, anti-Americanism in, in South Korea. But, you know, also what many of my colleagues and I are hearing in both Tokyo and Seoul is, you know, increasing concerns about the continued viability of the U.S. as an ally. And that's, you know, very disturbing to hear. Well, to a certain extent, you might think we just wait and see what happens politically in the U.S. Uh, but if we potentially have the strong possibility of, of re-election for President Trump, and obviously that's a, a whole other area of speculation, then, then we, we at least have to consider the, the chance that we're going to have several more years of, of this dynamic. Did, what's your worst fear? Do you have a worst fear at this point that's building? Or are you overall slightly more optimistic than pessimistic? 
well, as, as both an intelligence officer when I was in CIA and as a think tank uh, analyst, I think it's sort of my job to be concerned and nervous and think of all the ways things can go wrong. Uh, I mean, we have a number of concerns. I mean, it could be the, you know, the provocative behavior by North Korea, which triggers an angry response by President Trump, and we're back to fire and fury. Uh, there, the other hand, we could have a, a Trump rush to a bad deal, uh, where he prematurely um, sort of signs an end-of-war declaration, which leads to a withdrawal or drawdown of U.S. forces before we actually address the North Korean nuclear missile and conventional threat. Uh, you know, or we could have an angry response uh, on these special measures agreement negotiation. Just say, well, if you're not going to pay five billion, then you don't get twenty-eight thousand troops. You get twenty thousand, and we're going to bring some of them home. Uh, or President Moon might say, look, I, I can't pay more than let's say two billion. Um, what? Do, how many troops do I get for that? I'm fine with that. So there, there's sort of both a, a you know danger uh, scenario that we're concerned about, as well as a sort of a, a rush to a bad deal that could lead to some unraveling that also concerns us. What would uh, President Trump have to say or do that would actually make you think, right, this, this is getting serious again? He talked about already having the most powerful military in the world and, and would use it if if necessary. Uh, but um, in the same sweeping comments, he also seemed to be putting pressure on Seoul over this threat of removing troops. So um, what would mark for you uh, an indicator that things are changing for us to watch out for over the festive period? Right. Well, again, the, his comments, I mean, you could even just interpret it as, oh, if North Korea attacks the South, we will you know, respond to our treaty obligations and defend our our you know, our allies, were, as we've promised to do for decades. So it could be sort of a, a minimal threat in that sense, or just a statement of fact. I, I think where we're going to be getting nervous is if we see, you know, North Korea going up the, the ladder of, you know, IRBM over Japan or towards Guam, certainly if they do a ICBM test to a significant distance that clearly demonstrates a reentry vehicle capability, uh, you know, that, that is going to get a lot of attention here, and then it'll be a question of, you know, those who are advocating a preventive attack uh, to defend the American homeland before North Korea completes the capability, are they going to be pushing for it, so a lot of Republican senators who are doing that in 2017, or will they be less willing to do that, uh, you know, during an election year? Uh, also, another factor is the the main proponents for that preventive attack uh, were H.R. McMaster and John Bolton when they were national security advisors. Both of them are gone, so there's not as strong an advocate within the administration uh, for, I think, ramping up that kind of, of threat. Right. Well, you would think that Washington's going to have to be having the conversation, uh, whether they're doves or hawks, of, of how they will respond if, say, December 4th, there is an ICBM that flies up in the sky from the north, and I certainly wouldn't rule out that possibility at this point. Bruce Klingner, Senior Research Fellow for Northeast Asia at Heritage Foundation, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it.